0: Let's pray together before we read God's word. Let's pray. Our great God, we confess that we are sinful people in need of your grace. We confess that we are foolish people in need of your wisdom. We confess that we are proud people in need of your humbling. We confess that we lack everything, but in Christ there is everything. May you speak to us, we ask by your spirit, as we read your word this evening. And may we see more of Christ and have our affections raised to him. We ask these things, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the fame of his name amongst the nations. Amen. This evening we are in Ezra chapter 3. If you've got a church Bible, I believe it's on page 475. Let me read Ezra 3 for us this evening. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns... The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles, with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed and sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and Levites and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, twenty years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. After the election of President Trump to the United States of America, many argued that a vote was needed, a re-election was needed. After the Brexit referendum, many argued that again we needed another vote. Moments after the results of our recent general election, there were calls again that another election could be held. We live in a culture where people want a second chance We want take two, if you will. And I actually think all of us live in a culture. I think we all want a second chance. Not just on those big elections, things like that. Perhaps think back to a year which was particularly hard. We want a second chance at that again. A way to do things differently. Perhaps you moved house or changed jobs and think maybe I wouldn't have done that if I had the second chance. Perhaps you did something one evening you regret. Or a time you just wish you held your tongue. We wish we had a second chance. And in Ezra Ezra 3, we find the people with just that. We find them with a second chance. God's people have been unfaithful to the God who loves them, the God who cares for them. He warned them that he would scatter them. But in amongst those warnings, there was a promise that he would come back to Jerusalem. And what we've seen is that God's word was fulfilled completely. His rebellious people were taken off into exile. Scattered away, taken from Jerusalem. And then in the last two weeks, we've seen in Ezra, God fulfilling that promise to his people And fulfilling it in quite a remarkable way. We saw, didn't we, the start of Ezra, those words, so that the words of the Lord would be fulfilled. God used a pagan king to do his work. Isn't that remarkable? He used a pagan king who would proclaim freedom to go home and provision for his people to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Isn't that remarkable the way God did that? Let's remember that description we used back in week one in Ezra. Remember we said that the temple was the visible sign of the Christ to come. And to do this work, to do this rebuilding of this sign, God also used his people. He stirred in their hearts some to return home and begin this work. And we saw at the end of last week, didn't we? God gathering his people, not from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem now, but rather gathering his people from the four corners of the world to the new Jerusalem, to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people in Ezra 3 had been given a second chance. They spent decades away in captivity, decades away from home, unable to worship God, unable to live life the way they wanted to. But now they're home. What are they going to do differently? How are they going to use the second chance? What are their priorities? I think in Ezra 3, we see primarily primarily they want to worship God. What does that look like? Well, they seek to be obedient. They seek atonement with God, and they seek to begin to rebuild the temple. That's the outworking of their worship to God. Let's see how these three things work out. First off, let's see this obedience they have. Look down at Ezra 3, if you have it in front of me, and notice the repeating language of obedience. Verse 2, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, then in accordance with what is written. Verse 10, as is prescribed by David, king of Israel. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God is faithful to his words. Here we see his people seek to mirror that. They seek to be faithful to him, to be obedient to his words. And what do they do? Well, they're going to do the festivals. They're going to do the sacrifices, the offerings. They're going to do it at the right time of the year. They want to be faithful to their faithful God. But it doesn't stop there with the explicit things. This, this obedience, this faithfulness is also implicit here in the text. Look at the description of the rebuilding of the temple foundations. It's exact parallels of the way the original temple was built. Masons and carpenters are, are employed like in 1 Chronicles 2. Payment is made with food and drink and oil like in 2 Chronicles 2. Cedars of Lebanon are ordered again like in 2 Chronicles 2 building begins in the second month, like in 2 Chronicles 3, even their response to the completion of the foundation of the temple is the same as those that had gone before them. Keep one finger in Ezra 3 and turn back to 2 Chronicles 7 on page 442. And let me read verse 6 of 2 Chronicles 7. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing together. And turn back to Ezra chapter 3. And look from verse 10 and 11. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They tried to live life their way, and it didn't work. And now they're back. They're trying to live by the book, so to speak. They're trying to be faithful, being obedient to God. Of course, obedience always results in action. It involves doing. But let's not misunderstand why they're doing this year. Let's remember in Ezra 3, they're not following God's word to be saved. They are saved. They are God's people, saved by grace. So they're seeking to live saved as saved people. What we see here in Ezra 3 is no no different for us in the New Testament. As saved people, we are also called to live saved, obedient lives. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15, 15. If you love me, then what? Keep My commands. That was his word to his apostles. Or even think of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What is it Jesus tells the apostles to do here? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in earth and on heaven has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The people in Ezra three, their love for God was demonstrated in their obedience to God. So is the same for the Christian today. Our love for God is seen in our obedience to God, not to be saved, but rather because we are saved. But the way the people worship God in Ezra 3, I think it's quite striking. I wonder if you notice how they were described in verse 1 of the chapter. We see here it's a together thing. The people of God, once scattered in judgment, now gather together, act in corporate unity. Following the word of God, they gather as one, as one man in Jerusalem. Made me wonder, why do they come together as one? That's obvious, isn't it? If they're going to come to Jerusalem together, but why put in the as one bit? Or well, think because they have sinned as one. They've been brought home, allowed to rebuild the temple. Even now, they have the resources to do it, the skills to do it, the workforce to get on with it. But they don't do it straight away, and for good reason. What stopped the Jewish people building the temple is the same thing that usually hinders the church. It's not a lack of gift, it's not a lack of resources, but rather it's sin. So in their obedience, what did they do before they sought to get on with the Lord's work? They did the right thing. They sought to deal with their corporate sin. So they built an altar. People sometimes talk about the school of suffering. I wonder if you've heard that phrase before. I think it's from John Newton. The school of suffering. I wonder if you've been there before. A time in your life when you are suffering and in your in your helplessness. You're forced to question why are you doing what you're doing? Forced to question how you're living. Forced to question what are your priorities in life? That's exactly what the Jewish people here have been doing during their time of judgment. Thinking over these things. So they want to be obedient. They want God to dwell amongst them once again. He is their delight. But for that to happen, they recognize they need atonement for their sin. They want to be at one with God. And how does that happen? How do people become one with God? How can a sinful people approach a holy God? Well, that's a good question. But it's a wrong question, I think. Rather, we should ask, how can a holy God live among his sinful people and not destroy them? If you're here this morning in the kids' talk, you would have heard the answer to that question. It was amazing hearing from, from Hugh and his coincidences, so to speak. I was amazed this morning when I got the text from David and he asked, the, he asked me to do the, the um Kids talk, I asked Amy, uh, what's Sunday school on today? And she said the tabernacle, and I was like, ha, huh, that's interesting. This evening's is quite similar to that. How can a holy God live among his sinful people and not destroy them? Well, the answer is by offering sacrifices. Hence, they build the altar first, then the temple. They want to be made right with God, become right with God before they get on with the Lord's work. Why is a sacrifice needed? Well, the Apostle Paul sums it up quite easily for us. The wages of sin is death. If a man is sinful and he is not to die, he brings an animal to the temple and the animal instead will die on his behalf. I notice in takes a diet as a burnt offering, a burnt offering for sin. That's the first offering made in Ezra 3.3. I wish we'd time to go into all the different offerings to make, but unfortunately we don't this evening. And this man, he brings his... His, his uh, sacrifice, to the temple, it dies instead of him. Is the offering accepted before the Lord? Well, in the start of Leviticus, we see it is. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. An aroma pleasing to the Lord, because there, there is a penitent sinner to whom he will give forgiveness. Is that not wonderful? This man's not earning his forgiveness. The animal belongs to God. The priests belong to God. The whole system belongs to God. It's a way to receive the mercy of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God here is life. That's why they had to bring a sacrifice. But why a new altar? Why not the old one? Because the old one had been treated so badly. It was corrupted, abused, prostituted to other gods. And so a new one was to be built. It had been destroyed. And the ones to do it by the books. They built it in the exact same place as the old one. But why else did they build the altar? Have a look again at verse 3. Striking this verse, isn't it? Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar. Despite their fear of the peoples around them. Perhaps if the Jews have just kept their head down, they returned home, it's got with a quiet way of life. It might have been fine for them, but they chose not to. Now, I'd be tempted to think if I was there and got enemies not out on the outside, what's the first thing to do? I'm going to build a wall, aren't I? I'm going to protect myself. Then, what, then I'll build the temple. Then I'll build the altar. These guys do the opposite. Like their their own safety was not their priority. Being right with God was their priority. So there, in the place of the old woman, they built a new altar for all to see. An altar which in and of itself says there must be sacrifices for sin. An altar that says that we are all guilty. An altar that says that the Lord is the only one who can take away our shame. Can you imagine what what these enemies would be thinking when they saw that? How dare they say that about me? How dare they say that the Lord's the only one who can take away our shame? How dare they say that their God's the only true God? How dare they say that we are guilty? That's offensive, that's, that's hurtful to those who disagree. This has to be stopped. The Lord is the one true God. No, it's arrogant, you can't say that. Something has to die in my place as a substitute. No, it's wicked, you can't do that. Despite their fear of people around them, the people stayed obedient. They remained faithful. They feared their enemies, but they feared a holy God far more. Sometimes we can fear others, fear what they might do, fear to be faithful to the Lord, fear the, the cold shoulder, that awkward silence of disagreement. Yesterday, me and one of my old colleagues were uh, off-roading near Helmsborough when his land Rover was bouncing about the place and we got talking to uh, the instructor. We, we were clueless, hadn't done off-roading before. And he was talking to us about his time in the Navy and he shared some of his thoughts about Jesus and about God. And it got to the point in that conversation when you know you should tell him about Jesus. And we got scared. We got scared. Why? Because we thought we need this guy to tell us what to do. We're going to crash into a river here at this point. Sometimes we get scared for most ridiculous reasons, don't we? We fear people more than we fear the Lord. Why is that? Why do we care so much what others think about us in that sense? I think because we can be tempted to play top trumps. You've played the game Top Trumps before. You've got a set of themed cards like film characters or people on the football team or cars or whatever. And each card contains a list of numerical data. And the aim of the game is you have a card, your friend has a card. And you you compare numbers against each other. And whoever has the highest number trumps the other person and gets their card as well. And these Jews, they have their card out with their stats on it. They have their enemies cards with their stats on and they go, pretty scared of these guys. Then they see they've also got the God card as well and they see his stats perfect over them and they go, actually, I'm going to fear him rather than fear my enemies. And often we're no different. We can be tempted to play top trumps just as much, just as much with others outside of the church, just as much as with ourselves, to be honest. We can, we can play top chumps against other people to tell ourselves that we aren't quite as sinful as our consciences tell us we are. Aren't we tempted to compare ourselves with somebody else and say, my church attendance is nine, I'm pretty good, theirs is only seven, I feel better about myself. But my gossip, oh, that's eight, and theirs is three, oh, they're doing a bit better than me there. But my service in church, I help in Sunday school, so actually I'm quite good about myself again. We often play down our sin by playing top trumps. We compare ourselves to one another. And what's that result in? Well, either us at the top being full of pride, looking down on other people, or at the bottom, despairing, perhaps admitting that I can't forgive myself, which is also pride, saying I can't admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Or sometimes tempted to play top trumps with churches, you might think that we're in the Goldilocks church, the one that's just right. Those guys over there, they're, they're super liberal. We're not like them. We're not like these guys who are uber conservative. We are just right in the middle. You play top trumps just like I imagine these guys here are doing. And all of it is pride. For a holy God to dwell with his people and not destroy them, their sin must be dealt with. So first was The altar. That was of utmost importance. And then came the foundations for the temple. Why the temple? Well, because God wanted to live amongst his people. Let's remember it was him who stood the heart of Cyrus to send them back to rebuild the temple. It was his idea, not their idea. The temple was the visible sign of the Christ to come. The Christ who would one day come in the flesh, the God-man, and dwell amongst his people. And by God wanting his temple to be built, he is still saying to these rebellious people that he is still committed to being amongst them. Is that not remarkable? What a faithful God. It's the Bible, in one sense, is the story about God coming down to live with his people. Or to change the analogy, the story of the Bible is not the story of a lost sheep finding their shepherd. The story of the shepherd finding his lost sheep and bringing them home. Have a look at the end of the passage where we see the results of the, their construction. Look at verses 11 to 13. See the great outpouring of emotion at the end of the text. The foundations have been completed with a strange climax, strange anticlimax. There is great worship, but there is great weeping. There is much singing, but there is also much sorrow. Why such extreme reactions here while some were exuberant to what was to come? Such expectancy, such joy. One day perhaps God may dwell amongst us like he did before. Is there anything better than that? And others such sadness about what was, what has gone. This small temple, a fragment of what was before. And these people realized what they'd lost. It was their sin that made them lose it. God may forgive our sin completely. He may wash us clean. may be brought back to him. But he doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. Look at the words that were sung. He is good. His love, his steadfast love endures forever. These words would have been painful words for them. Think of it like this. You know how Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in the UK? You know that's true. And then you climb Ben Nevis, and you look out, and then you know Ben Nevis is the tallest mountain in the UK. So the Jewish people knew that God is good, that his steadfast, covenant love endures forever. Then they were judged, scattered, but gathered back, brought alive again. And now they know that he is good, that his steadfast love endures forever. And the older we get, we know this to be true, don't we? We sin again and we see the graciousness of God forgiving our sin over and over again. We see again that he remains faithful even when we are faithless. Let's end with the big so what. What was their building of the altar? What was their building of the temple got to do with us? Well, in their time away, in their second chance, they get their priorities right. They want more than anything to worship God, to be with God. And so, what does that look like? Well, they seek to be obedient. They seek atonement with God, and they seek to build the temple. Like those lawbreakers, we too are lawbreakers. We, like them, deserve God's judgment. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what everyone deserves. The wages of sin is death. But, 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 it's always good in the Bible, aren't they? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we no longer need to build an altar. In Hebrews 10, we read that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is the priest who has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And now he has sat down at the right hand of God. For by his one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. We need not build an altar because Christ was sacrificed on the altar once for all for us. So what is our response? Hebrews 10 goes on. So let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us live faithful lives in response to our faithful God. That's the atonement altar stuff. What about the temple? We see in Ezra 2 and 3, God's gathering his people to rebuild the temple. What does that mean? First of all, this this temple theme is brought out to a number of conclusions in the New Testament. We see, the temple is applied in 1 Corinthians 3 to the church. Verse 16, let me read it. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Write into church in Corinth and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. This little community we are as St. Peter's, this church fellowship A temple of God. Is that not remarkable? What does that mean for us as a church? Not just us, but a wider church. It means we don't mock it. We don't despise the church. We don't leave it for no good reason. We love the church. Because God is there. A temple is also applied to the individual in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Is that remarkable? For the Christian, they themselves are the temple of the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who rose Christ from the dead dwells with the believer. And to all these people, well, here it's the church in Corinth. It's applied to every church, from all tribe and tongue and nation. People who have heard the gospel and believe it. This room tonight is full of temples of the Holy Spirit. It's not that extraordinary. In John 2, we all see that Christ himself refers to himself as the temple. We all want a second chance. The Jewish people were given a second chance, a chance to do things differently. So they were obedient to God, obedient to his word to make much of him. Now, before they got on with his work of rebuilding the temple, they first had to seek atonement for their sins because they wanted to be with God. He was their delight. If you are here and you are on a to Krishna, second chance is also an offer for you. And just like the people in Ezra, what is needed is atonement. Christ died for you to bring you to God. So turn from your sin and live for God. If you are a Christian here, you have a second chance also. So what are your priorities going to be? Well, in the same way, I think many priorities we see are the same as an Ezra. Using Ezra-like language, to save people, we live saved lives by being obedient to God's words. And that means first coming not to an altar in a temple, but to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place. So we repent of our sin and we believe the good news of the gospel. That means that as we go out, we do not build a temple of bricks, but we build a spiritual temple as we tell people the gospel and God stirs their hearts and brings dead people to life. We do this not on our own, with the spirit of the Lord who dwells within us. What a gracious God we see in Ezra. What a gracious God we have. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, rejoice that the same God we praise this evening is the same God who was praised in Ezra 3. For you are good. And your, your love, your steadfast current love endures forever. Do how we know this to be true. For we have time and time again come to know your faithfulness in our faithlessness. If we know that our hearts are prone to wonder, please forgive us of our sin we ask. And we marvel at all that we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that because you now live, we live in you. We thank you for our union with you. May you help us to live with the priorities that you give us in your words. As saved people, help us to live saved lives. As people who have been forgiven by you, may we be people who forgive. And we rejoice that you are calling people from all over the world to yourself. we're truly humbled that you use us in that work of declaring the glory of Christ amongst the nations. And so we pray all these things, Lord Jesus, for your fame and your renown amongst the nations and for our joy in you. Amen.